0: to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.blchurch.tv. Well, amen. How are we doing this morning? Awesome. It's so incredible to be back in the presence of God's family with the spirit of the Lord. And uh, I see some new faces today. So I just want to say welcome. And uh, we just have this challenge that we put out there that uh, we challenge all of our guests in the house to uh, just to come back. How many weeks, church? Three weeks, right? Uh, To come back three weeks in a row. Why? It's because we know how hard it is to find a church home in one week. It's like going out on a first date and deciding to marry the person that you're with. It just ain't going to happen, right? So you need some time to to get used to the person, to figure out if this is the right fit. So we challenge you to come three weeks in a row, and our prayer is, is during that period of time... That, uh, that as we get to know you, you get to know us, that God would move on your heart. And uh, if you want to not uh, date us any longer, but go steady and uh, join our faith family, as Scott said, we say welcome home. And so uh, we, we love you, and we uh, are praying for you and excited for what God is going to do in your life uh, here at Vertical Life Church. We are in our holiday season. We are in a holiday series. We got through the devil's holiday. Now we're getting ready to Jesus, right? And again, amen. Right, right. So uh, it's just, I just believe in my heart that Jesus has gotten ripped off the last 2,000 years. Fall gets two months, but Christmas only gets one month, right? Christmas only gets one month to celebrate. So we started backing it up at our house, and my wife has made me wait till after her birthday on November 14th to uh, put out Christmas lights and decorations. But as soon as her birthday comes around, we start setting it up. We start, we start decorating. So we give Jesus a month and a half or so now in our household. So we, we started that as a tradition. But I always love, around the holidays, talking about uh, the holidays and what God has for us. And as Scott said, Christmas is one of the most important days of the year. Because it's the day we celebrate Jesus coming into the world and transforming our hearts and lives. Like, like his life has touched literally everything. Uh, You can look at cultures around the world, and his life has had an impact in many nations around the world for for thousands of years. It's a remarkable thing. So we are, uh, for the next several weeks, going through a holiday series called Family Matters, where we're talking about issues that can rise up during the holidays that try to steal the joy of the season, right? This is supposed to be a time of comfort and joy, But often there are issues that come up that kind of rob the the holiday season of being that blessing that we all want to experience in the holiday season. And so last time we were together, we talked about calendar chaos and how we all have extremely busy lives. And what do we do during the holidays but make them even busier than what they already are? And so it actually pushes us towards that emotional and mental exhaustion that makes everything a little bit more tense and a little bit more tricky to navigate, and how if we just follow God's program for peace and rest, how we can actually be more centered and more present and not feel so torn. And that was an amazing study, an amazing conversation that we had. And today, we're going to have a little fun, because how many of you want to testify that in every family, there's that relative. You know what I'm talking about? There's always that one. And if you don't know who that is in your family, it's probably you. Just going just to say. Because everybody knows who that relative is. Right, and, and that just, it's that one person that, that has a way of grading on us. And so we're going to talk about a few relatives, maybe some people you might know from holidays past that you might be able to relate with, some example relatives. You might, you might see some of this in some of, the, some of the family members that you have, but the first relative we want to talk about is Cousin Eddie. How many of you have a Cousin Eddie in your family? Right? He's, a, he's sweet, you know, he's, he's endearing, but he's so out of touch with reality. Everything he does is obnoxious and irritating. All right? And so you just cringe at the thought of having to be around Cousin Eddie. If you could crop one person out of the family photo each year, it would be Cousin Eddie. You're just like, can we just be done with this guy? Right? He always seems to need you for something, and it makes interactions and, and stress with him unavoidable, but, but nonetheless, he's family, so you got to deal with it, right? Or how many of you have a Grandma Elsie, right? Grandma Elsie, this is Elsie from the movie um, While You Were Sleeping. If you've not seen it, it's a great movie with Sandra Bullock, but Elsie, she, she's that, that elderly relative that you don't know if she's sober or drunk at any given time. Because what comes out of her mouth is bewilderment. It, 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 you just don't know if she's all there. She always has something to say, always has an opinion to throw in. She's a tell you like it is kind of person. And, and you know she does it because she cares about you, but those comments get you under the skin every time, all right? And number three, there's a Ebenezer Scrooge. How many of you have a have a Scrooge in your home. He's mad at everyone and everything. He has a critical word for everything. Even he will criticize puppies. How do you criticize puppies, right? They're puppies. They're adoring, everybody loves puppies, right? But he's the one you don't want to invite, Right? He's the one you just, man, do we have to this year? Can't we just like forget or misplace his invitation this year? Let's, let's just like skip over uh, Scrooge because the anxiety you feel writing out that card is just sometimes too much to bear. Or how about number four? Brother Buzz. He doesn't just make your life uh, miserable on accident. He lives to make your life miserable. He wants you to know how much he hates your guts all of the time. Your nickname from Brother Buzz is Moron. That's that's, that's your nickname. It's no secret that he can't stand you because he makes sure every day you know he hates your guts. Or number five, how about Aunt Clara? How many of you have an Aunt Clara? You see, in the movie A Christmas Story, Aunt Clara has a very pivotal role, even though she never appears in the film. Aunt Clara is responsible for the pink nightmare, for the bunny suit. You have to know, Aunt Clara knows, boys don't want pink bunny suits. They want Red Ryder BB guns. That's what they want. But she's so narcissistic... That she makes even her gifts about herself. Everything that she does is to prop her up, make her feel good. It's not about you. It's about her. How about number six? Anybody have a kneel? You know the outsider? He's not blood, but he's attached. And he always wants to try to fix you. He has something to say. He has an opinion. If he corners you, you'll be talking about religion and politics the whole time. You know you know what I'm saying? You, you gotta you got a kneel in your family. Or how about number seven, Uncle Frank? Uncle Frank from Home Alone. He's the freeloading mooch who's hypercritical and completely entitled. His bold posture makes it hard to say no to him, feeling you, leaving you feeling used and abused, and you can't stand it, but you just can't seem to stop it. He doesn't help with the food or doing the dishes or the cleanup because he conveniently appears when it's ready and disappears before it's time to pack it away. He just can't stick around to help. And then lastly, probably my favorite, number eight, Buddy the Elf because everybody's got somebody that's just a little crazy in their family, right? We all have maybe manifestations of these relatives in our home, somewhere in our family tree, no matter what holiday that, that, that we're coming upon or how you try to psych yourself up, they seem to always bring kind of this cloud of frustration and negativity. And it's hard to really fully enjoy the holidays because of the, the, the attitude or the environment or the atmosphere that they create. And some families have such tension that they just choose not to get together at all. And I didn't learn this till later, but when I was younger, uh, when all my uh, family on my father's side lived in the Northeast, we used to get together for holidays. We'd go to my grandparents' house. We'd have Christmas there and I think Thanksgiving there. But when I got older, we stopped getting together. Years went by before I ever saw some of my family members. As a matter of fact, even if they were in town, they wouldn't let us know. That they were in town, and I came to find out later that it's because there was such sharp tension between some of them, including with my grandparents, who I I loved and appreciated. But there was such tension that they just decided it's better not to get together. And, and my grandparents, I, I came to find this out, where they were known for being outspoken. They were the tell you like it is uh, kind of folks. They were always inserting themselves into your business, not because of anything other than because they cared about you. Like they saw something, they cared, so they just felt like they were obligated to insert themselves. They just lacked the grace to speak into our lives without maybe offending people. And that was kind of what was said, that they often made you feel criticized. And I didn't really experience that much growing up until I was married, and then I'd discern that this trait of being kind of graceless and tactless is an inherited trait, and I'm really trying to work on that. But when I was uh, when I was newly married, you know, my my grandfather he was he's World War II generation. He was the first uh, uh, I think. Officer class outside of World War II when World War II ended, the first officer class from the Air Force when it was initiated. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force when he retired. He flew bombers, he flew planes in the Air Force in Vietnam in the Korean War. And so he kind of grew up just kind of a hard guy. When he got saved, my grandma actually led him to Christ. He went into the ministry and he was part of really traditional, really legalistic churches. So the environments that he was in didn't really lend to really that grace-filled, you know, gentle environment. So I kind of understand where he came from. And so when my parents, uh, when my dad and his my aunts and uncles were younger, um, they, they, he was a lot harsher than he was with us grandkids. And so I can understand kind of maybe where he came from and, and where that tension with my relatives uh, maybe came from, but he didn't really, like, criticize me very much at all. It really didn't speak much into my life until I got married and was contemplating going into the ministry. Uh, when, uh, my, when my wife and I were married, my, uh, my grandfather took me out to eat, and uh, he decided that he wanted to kind of father me a little bit. And uh, when we were first married, I had my ears pierced. I, I, had, I had them gauged, actually, because I was cool. And, uh, and so uh, he was kind of concerned that if I wanted to go into the ministry, maybe some uh, churches wouldn't want to hire me because my ears were pierced. Lo did he know I didn't want to work for churches that didn't want to hire me because my ears were pierced. Those weren't the kind of churches I wanted to go to. But, but he was concerned. And so uh, he, he let me pick the restaurant. We went out to the Chinese buffet. It was great. You know, it was low threshold. I was eating. So I was up for anything he wanted to talk about. And he was instructing me about having my ears pierced. And then the conversation turned. And we went from talking about ministry to talking about marriage. And he wanted to instruct me on how a husband helps his wife know that she's loved in marriage. And my 70-some-year-old ex-pastor military grandfather, he gave me some of the wisest advice that anybody could give. He said, you know, every once in a while, you got to let your wife know you love her. So you need to pat her on the fan, quote, unquote. And here I'm thinking, did my elderly grandfather just tell me the way to show my wife I love her is to smack her on the behind? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Just so you know, my wife really feels love. No, I'm just playing. That does not work, gentlemen. Well-intentioned, but way off Trap. But this is the kind of thing that he would do. Was that his place? No, that wasn't necessarily his place. I had a father. But he would insert himself into conversation. My, my grandma had some interesting conversations with my wife when we were first pregnant, and I think she was more like Grandma Elsie because it didn't make a lot of sense. But nonetheless, this is the type of relationships, this is what they were like. They were known for overstepping, but that caused a lot of frustration in our extended family, and as such, our family stopped getting together. So growing up, really, the only experiences I had were my grandparents coming to visit us because we were the only house where they were welcome. And that was sad to me. When Tony and I were first dating, really, and uh, before we were married, I was up here visiting uh, for the Christmas season, and I remember being invited to her grandma's house for Christmas, and it wasn't just her family and her grandma. It was all of her extended relatives, and everyone was enjoying, laughing, goofing around. Her Uncle Barry thought he would try to uh, intimidate me a little bit and ask me questions about music I knew and he didn't, so that was fun. But I just remember feeling like this is what the holidays are supposed to be like, surrounded by the people you love and that love you, just enjoying the season together. And, and I just remember being deeply impacted by that, filling a missing void that was in my heart. You see, no family is perfect. Nobody's perfect. But being imperfect together is far better than being imperfect alone. And often until we look past our differences for the sake of loving one another, we often miss the blessing of having family and that having family really produces. And a passage of Scripture that just jumped out at me as I was thinking about this is found in John chapter 13. If you have your Bible, you can turn there as well as it'll be on the YouVersion Bible app. We'll have the verses also on the screen. But in John chapter 13, this is the moment of the Last Supper, the last supper Jesus has with his disciples before his crucifixion. And here at the Last Supper, his disciples are about to eat their final holiday meal because it's at Passover season. So they're celebrating a holiday. But before they get started, Jesus does something really particular. In John 13, verse 1, it says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. And he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for bringing us here. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that your word never returns void. And we know we all have challenges. We all have relationship struggles. We all have issues that we have to work through. But God, for the next few moments, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind that understands, and a heart ready to believe in everything that you've prepared for us. God, so that not only can we glorify you with our lives, but that your healing power and restoration power can flood our families during this holiday season, that there wouldn't be tension and disunity. But God, there'd be a restoration and blessing in every home in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Interesting here in John 13 verse 1, says that Jesus knew his hour had come. Like, this wasn't a surprise to Jesus. He was so in tune with the Father, the voice, the Spirit. He had already understood that like, It's coming. What everything he'd been preparing for, every reason why he came was about to be fulfilled. And it says that he loved, somebody say he loved. He loved his disciples from the beginning during his ministry. And now it says he loved them to the very end. So the marker of Christ's ministry from the time he called his disciples to this moment, his last meal, was a marker of love. He spent the last three years preparing his disciples, preparing for this moment, and he loved them through the entire process. He loved his disciples, and what did that love look like? Because you know those disciples were not perfect disciples. They were a bunch of rugrats and misfits, right? Right? What did that love look like? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. The love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. This is the love of God that was demonstrated through Christ to his disciples. And there is no greater description of love in all the planet. This is why this is so very profound and important right here in this moment. In John chapter 13, as it's talking about, he loved his disciples from the beginning. He loved them to the very end. He was patient with them. He wasn't proud or rude. He didn't demand his own way. He wasn't irritable. He kept no record of being wronged. He never gave up. He didn't lose faith. He was always hopeful, which means he always believed the best in his disciples. And he endured, which means he had a positive attitude no matter the circumstances. And he was faithful. This is so profound as we look at verse 2 in chapter 13. In John chapter 13, verse 2, it says, It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. He loved him from the beginning, he loved him to this point, the very end. He already knew his hour had come, and he already knew the devil had put. The belief, the thought, the plan, the scheme in Judas' heart to betray him. He already knew. He knew full and well what Judas was going to do. The plans that were in his heart. And yet, it says, he loved his disciples to the very end. He never stopped loving Judas. Judas. He never stopped believing in Judas. He never stopped hoping in the best for Judas. He never stopped speaking life over Judas. And how does he demonstrate that? John 13, in verse 3, it says... Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything and that he'd come from God and would now return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and then he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around it. The one in authority, worthy of worship, the one worthy of being served disrobes, makes himself the form of a servant, bends down, lowers himself, and serves even Judas. And after Jesus gets to Peter, and we have that famous back and forth, Peter's like, not just my head, but wash all of me. I want you to wash all of me. Jesus says in John 13:10. A person who's bathed all over doesn't need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean. You disciples are clean. Why? Because of their faith in him. Water was just for the physical body, but they were already clean because their faith had made them clean. But what's he say? But not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. And that's what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. He's saying, I washed all of you, and you are all clean except for the one whose heart doesn't belong to me. See, water is good for the body, but what sets you free is a faith in Christ Jesus, a heart that's given completely to him. And Jesus already knew who had Judas' heart. It wasn't him. It was Satan. But yet, he washes his feet anyway. Like, think about that. Put yourself in the Lord's place. You already know what's coming. And you bend down, and you love him anyway. How was he able to do it? To lower himself, to love this guy who was really his enemy, who would betray him to death? How was he able to bless the one who cursed him and not repay evil for the one who was going to do evil to him? See, so Jesus goes even further. In Matthew chapter 26, this is, The Garden of Gethsemane, as he's been praying and toiling in prayer and and just broken completely down. We now have the moment where the betrayer comes to present himself before Jesus. In Matthew 26, verse 47, it says, Even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men with swords and clubs, They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor Judas had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a betraying kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed, and he gave him the kiss. And Jesus said, My friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. We focus on the kiss, we focus on the swords and the clubs. But what we miss is what Jesus calls Judas. He calls him his friend. This blows my mind. This is not a natural way to respond. This is a supernatural way to respond. The natural way would it be to drop some words you have to change into symbols in a text message. The natural way would be to want to fight. But rather than making him an enemy, he still confesses his love for Judas. He knew what he was like. He knew what he was due. He knew in prophetic revelation Everything Judas was going to accomplish, but I can't wrap my mind around it. Jesus doesn't turn from him. He turns to him. And he calls him friend. And we know the story. Jesus ultimately dies. And what was the result? What was the impact on Judas? Judas saw what he did. He was so racked with grief, he tried to repent. He tried to pay the money back. But the deal was done, and he ends up killing himself. The power of the love of Christ is so powerful, it can take an enemy and turn him into a friend. The power of the love of Jesus in any circumstance we faith is not or face is not a natural love, it's a supernatural love. And I believe this is the type of love God wants to demonstrate to us and through us. And I believe in order to get through the holidays successfully without letting any particular characters or family members put a sour taste in our mouths or a chill in the holiday spirit, we need to take our cues from Jesus. We need to look at the way he loved, and we need to then pattern our response, our our love, after the way he loved. And so I just want to give you a few tips that can help turn your gatherings from a bust into a blessing, that that can help turn the, the atmosphere from one of tension to the one of comfort and joy. We can see this right here in this encounter with Jesus calling Judas Friend, there was a pastor that we were at a, the Man Up Conference one year, and he was talking about this passage, and his revelation has spoken to me. continues to speak to me. As he's reading this passage, he said that he was having an issue with somebody in his life. I can't remember if it was somebody in the office or, or outside or in the family. But he said, I was having an issue with somebody, and I read this passage, and then the Spirit of God spoke to me. If Jesus could call Judas friend, he said, then don't call enemy someone I've called friend. Don't label somebody an enemy who I've called a friend. And so the first tip I have for you, the first thing that we can do to begin even now to set ourselves up for a great holiday season, especially as we're dealing with difficult people, number one is don't pre-label them. Don't pre-label them. Don't make up in your mind what you think they're, they're going to be like. Don't, don't anticipate them living up to the assumptions you have about them, that they're going to keep being what they've always been. Because that presets us into a negative disposition that then primes us to react in a negative way when they fulfill that assumption. When we label people in a negative way, what are we doing? We're quenching the love of God. In 1 Corinthians 3, 7, it says that love hopes all things and believes all things. If you're labeling them in a negative way, you're not hoping all things. You're not believing for change. You're not hoping for a better thing. You're already sealing their fate. We're not hoping things could be different. What we're doing is expecting the worst. And when it happens, it already adds to the misery and unpleasant Uh, situation we have and this is really an issue of judging people in Matthew chapter 7 Jesus uh, talks about this this well-known passage of scripture about judging others in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 he says don't judge others and you'll not be judged for you will be treated as you treat others the standard you use in judging is the same standard by which you'll be judged and why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They'll trample the pearls and turn and attack you. We often mistranslate or misinterpret this passage. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to judge. He's saying that you need to have the right heart, the right disposition before you try to help somebody else. He's saying when you have dealt with the log in your own eye, then you'll see well enough. So he's not saying you can't help people or speak into people's lives. He's saying you can't do it until you've got the right disposition or the right attitude. So the first thing he says, he says, don't judge others. Don't label them. Don't categorize them. Don't size them up. Don't highlight their imperfections and define them by their mistakes or their shortcomings. Don't hold them to a level of perfection you yourself cannot meet or reach. It's like having a log in your eye. Can you picture that for a minute? Can you picture a bunch of people walking around with two by fours sticking out of their eye? It's ridiculous, right? That's Jesus' point. It's ridiculous to try to fix everyone else when you're busted stuff. Having a log in your own eye while pointing out someone else's speck is hypocritical. And what's often the case is that the speck in their eye has flaked off of the log in your eye. When we judge others, what we're doing is we're taking a self-righteous posture. And we're basically saying, I've arrived. I have this level of maturity, spirituality, and I now exist and have this right to judge you because of my level of of righteousness. Determine your worth and your unworthiness or worthiness for love and for grace. And when we do that, what are we doing? We're opening ourselves up for judgment. Because people are going to do the same thing back to us. You don't think if you criticize other people, they're not going to be critical of you? Of course they are. We expose our own hypocrisy. The truth of the matter is that until you're walking in humility, dealing with your own issues, you can't see clear enough to help anyone else. Until you deal with your own heart, you're not even accurately helping them with theirs. you got to deal with you. Even if what you have to say is the truth, Until you've dealt with your own heart, you don't have the relational credibility or the moral credibility to speak into someone else's life. So when Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine because they'll turn and attack you, that's the context of what he's saying. He's saying, even if what you think you're saying is the truth, it's a pearl of wisdom, it won't be received well. Because it's not coming from the right place or the right attitude with compassion and grace. What it actually is going to do is create defensiveness in a combat situation that will put you at risk of being criticized and attacked in the process. Check your heart. Don't pre-label them. So instead of focusing on their issues and their shortcomings, take the binos off of them and put the microscope on your own heart. Deal with your own attitudes and behaviors. Because only then, when you see yourself as you are, for who you are, you're a broken mess in need of God's grace. Will you have the compassion to extend the same grace to other people? And if you're unwilling to extend that grace to others, you'll be treated with the same judgment. People will not be gracious to you. That's why Jesus said in Matthew seven twelve, he says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that's taught in the law and the prophets. This is the golden rule. Do to others what you want them to do to you. This comes from this principle. If you know you're not perfect, you know you make mistakes, and you know how you want people to respond to you when you mess up or you don't live up to the standard, then you need to give that same compassion and grace out to other people. who are you to do anything else? If you wouldn't want anyone to prejudge you, to label you, then don't prejudge others. Rather than pre-labeling them as a problem, consider labeling them as an opportunity for you to demonstrate God's divine love and grace. Number two, this is a toughie. Pre-forgive and post-forgive. If you know there's a chance of drama, you see it coming, ready your heart to be in the right spirit. Ephesians 4:2 says, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Somebody say, make allowance. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, what's that say? Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you should forgive others. Are you catching a theme? Make allowance. Make room. Plan for the issue and plan on how you're going to deal with the issue before it comes. In Jesus' case, he didn't tell Judas off. He didn't run him off. He didn't shame him. He didn't condemn him. No, he washed Judas's feet. He served him, and he loved him anyway. See, often we let issues go from small to astronomical because we haven't prepared ourselves or our hearts to deal with the issue. We've psyched ourselves up about it. Oh, you know what they're going to do when they come here. They're going to be just like they were last year. They're going to... Man, they're going to act like that. What if they say that? If they say that to me one more time, somebody's getting a drumstick in their eye socket, you know? Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like we psych ourselves up for how we're going to negatively react. Why not take a play out of Jesus' book and psych ourselves up on how we're going to love them and show them grace? You know, spouses are guilty of this all the time. You have an issue with your spouse that drives you crazy. You know we all do. You can't live together with somebody and not have something that drives you crazy. Rather than preparing to deal with it in grace and love, we psych ourselves up about it. And so when that expected result happens, when they let you down again for the umpteenth time, what what do you do? You just blow your top. I've had it. I'm done. Judgment leads, and all the results are pigs in the mud, fighting each other. Luke 17, verse 4, Jesus says, if that person wrongs you seven times a day, each time turns again and asks forgiveness, what do you got to do? You got to forgive them. There is a lie that says, I don't need to forgive because they keep doing the same thing. Jesus said, if they ask your forgiveness, you are to forgive them. Because the standard isn't the world. The standard is the holiness and love of Almighty God. That whole, I'm not forgiving because they keep doing it, doesn't hold up biblically. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a way to keep division and tension in your relationship. Every time they ask your forgiveness, God wants you to forgive. Why? Because that's what he does with us. If we ask God's forgiveness, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There's no precondition. He knows we're not perfect. He knows we can't do this on our own. Our model is Jesus, not our feelings and our own wisdom. So when we make allowance for other people's faults, we forgive them in advance so that when the thing happens, we're already in a posture to respond in grace. And if they do something new that catches us off guard, Then we forgive them after the fact. We walk in forgiveness. Why? Because that's the way the Lord has forgiven us. Do you realize when Jesus offered his blood on the cross, he did it at the end of time, which makes everything you've ever done to God already past tense. It's already covered. There's already provision for it. So when you accidentally cut off the guy going to the restaurant after church today, he's already made provision for that. When you lose your temper at your coworker, he's already made provision for that. He's already set himself up to be in a place of forgiveness, grace, and compassion. You are totally and completely forgiven. And even better, the Bible says he forgets that it was ever done. He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't remember. The one who knows everything has chosen to not remember anything. 1 Corinthians 13:5, it says, Love keeps no record of being wronged. How many times? You always do. You never. Oh, you remember that time? That love keeps no record. When you stand before God and you give an account of your life, do you realize you will not give an account for anything you've ever done that was wrong? Not one thing. Why? Because it's removed as far as the east is from the west. There's no record. Your slate's clean. God's love is divine, supernatural love. Love keeps no record of being wronged. So for the sake of love, you refuse to keep bringing it up. Why? Because you're not the judge. You refuse to make them pay or atone. Why? Because Christ is our atonement. His blood was offered for every sin that will ever be committed against you and by you. Jesus paid the price. So we don't make other people pay. Jesus paid the price. It's like being taxed by the government. They tax you when you get your check, and then they tax you again when you die. It's not fair. There's too many taxes. Jesus paid all the tax. He paid all the fine. If we had to pay for our sins every time we made a mistake, nobody would get into heaven. It's by grace we're saved, not by works. So we must forgive And I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't deal harshly with us when we make mistakes. See, often people don't really know what they're doing, just as we didn't know what we're doing. And you remember what Jesus said on the cross when he was dying in agony? He said, Father, forgive them. Like it's real. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And often the people that hurt us, that wound us, that speak into our lives, unless they're a brother buzz, they don't know what they're doing. They're just ignorant. They don't see life from our perspective. They don't know why that hurts us or why they shouldn't do that. They're operating off of instinct. They don't know. And so we forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Don't label them pre-forgive and post-forgive. And lastly, number three, thank God for them. Thank God for them. Luke 6, 28, Jesus said, bless those who curse you and pray for those who hurt you. It's hard to hate someone you're praying for and asking God to bless. It's really hard. And I've heard pastors say this before, and I I believe it's true. You're not fully healed. You've not fully forgiven until you've been able to pray God's blessing on that person's life. Until you're in that place where you can pray for God's blessing, you've not fully forgiven. Because you can't bless if you're still holding on to resentment and bitterness. And that bitterness, it's like the, the writer of Hebrews calls it a bitter root. It's like a root that infects every area of your life. It's not just one relationship. It's every area. And so we forgive to uproot the roots. Forgiveness and blessing is really not for them. It's for you. Realize Jesus came to set captives free. Amen? That's why he came. Open blind eyes, open prison doors, set the captives free. In Matthew 18, he likens an unforgiving person to... A prisoner being tormented. Forgiveness doesn't let the person who wounded you off scot-free. Forgiveness releases your heart from being under the power of that wound any longer. It frees you. opens the door. Lightens the weight. And we know that Jesus didn't come to hold us down. He came to set us free. To give us life and life more abundantly. So we begin to pray for this individual or individuals, we begin to bless them, and as you do, you're going to grow in compassion. You're going to grow in grace. You're going to begin to see them the way God sees them. You're going to see them as a broken soul in need of healing and freedom, just like you. And you're going to wake up to the realities, you can't change people. Only God can change people. And so the only thing that you can do that will make a difference in somebody's life is not label them, not criticize them, not give them unwanted advice, not not yell at them, not scream with them. The only thing you can do that can make a real difference is pray for them. It's the only thing you can do. And prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. And it will accomplish infinitely more than what we could ask or think. You know, one of the lessons that God has been teaching Tony and I in many difficult relationships we've had in, in the past and, and some trying relationships we've had is that some people are just hard to love. And not because there's anything really wrong with them or with you, but your personalities don't mesh. And so it's like oil and water. And when that's the case, it can be really hard for you to love. But the key for us and what God's been teaching us is to make allowance, to look past their flaws and just be thankful for what is good. Be thankful for the good that's in them and learn to love and appreciate them for what they are despite the things that frustrate you or even hurt you. And what it does is it helps to change the way you view those relationships and your ability to love and think well of those individuals. And I've personally discovered this, this truth in my life because there's some relationships, there, there's people you can think of that, that are like the Grinch, right? They're like Uncle Frank. They're like Brother Buzz. You might even have a Cousin Eddie. But when you stop and you, you thank God for them, you begin to change the way you think, you may discover that you don't have a Buzz, a Grinch, an Uncle Frank, or an Eddie. What you really have is a Clarence. And it's a wonderful life. George wanted nothing to do with Clarence. He annoyed him. He drove him crazy. But what did he discover at the end of the film? That he was really a guardian angel. And what George needed most, Clarence, was there to provide. Sometimes the people you can't stand are the instrument God uses to teach you a valuable lesson about yourself, and sometimes they're there to help you through something you never thought you could make it through. But your judgment, your bitterness, unforgiveness blinds you to the good, to see the good, and to be in a place to receive from maybe even the most unlikely sources. To forgive and be gracious, to choose to bless and not curse. To serve even when we know we'll be taken advantage of. What does that do? It opens the door For God's love and his power to be released in our relationships and shift the atmosphere. And often our experience changes when God just shifts the atmosphere in us. To shift from an atmosphere of conflict to peace. You know, it takes two people to fight. If one person's being a booger and the other one's being a believer... There's no fight. But when both are being boogers, it's not good. It's not. It takes two to tango. When we release our grievances... That we, carry. we let God's love shine through us. Powerful things can happen. Romans 4, 7 says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Do you remember the moment when you realized Jesus had paid it all? When Jesus had taken care of everything? That all your mistakes were forgiven? That all your sins were forgiven? And, and now his love and grace was flowing freely to you? Do you remember that moment? Imagine what would happen to the person Who knows you can't stand them because something they did. Imagine the joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. It's life-changing. It's life-changing. I remember this moment in my life when I was under so much condemnation and shame for stuff that I had done. People that were right to disown me, right to desert me. But you know what they did? They didn't do any of that. They loved me. And that broke the power of so much shame and condemnation in my life. I remember the moment, clearly, I felt unconditional love for the first time in my life. And it was absolutely life-changing. And there were relationships that were like oil and water, that I had a bad taste in my mouth, that were there to point me to the right direction, to bring me resources and people into my life that were life-changing and transforming for me. And I... I would bet that if we stopped labeling people, that if we'd walk in forgiveness and we'd start blessing the people that cursed us, we'd find many clearances in our corner. So who is it in your life, beloved, that you're dreading to see for the holidays? Who's in your life that you're dreading to see at work or wake up to, maybe in the bed next to you? Who is it at school? that you're dreading to see. Would you commit today not to label them, but to forgive them? Would you commit today to begin preparing your heart to respond to their antics in love and grace? And would you commit to begin thanking God for bringing them into your life? Yes, for bringing them into your life because God's gonna take all things and work them together for your good. And they may be the very thing God uses to bring the greatest good into your life. To bless your life and to receive glory through your life. And I believe, beloved, if we begin walking this out, we're going to see changes in our family. Maybe even determining a legacy for years and years to come. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord God, I just thank you. For the example of Christ, I thank you what he demonstrated in life, that you truly showed us how much you loved us by sending Jesus into the world. And I just pray right now, God, if there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that doesn't have that life-changing relationship with you, that hasn't encountered unconditional love, that right now, God, right now the walls would fall. And that this opportunity would be their moment. And I just encourage you right now, if you're here in the sound of my voice and you don't have a relationship with God, you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't know that your sins are forgiven, you don't know that if you were to die today when you stand before God, it'd be welcome home that you would hear. Right now in this moment, you can receive that. You can begin that moment of transformation in your life simply by calling out to Him. In Romans chapter 10, it says, if you confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. Your stains will be washed away. Your, your rapsheet sheet will be cleansed for all eternity. And God himself will come live in you. And he has promised he'll never leave you or forsake you. Which means he'll never abandon you. And he'll never think badly of you. You never have to hang your head in shame again. Because God will be your father, Christ your brother, and the Holy Spirit your most intimate friend. If you're here today and you need to accept Christ as your Savior, I just encourage you right where you are just to pray this with me. Say, Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to pay for my sins. I believe in his death. I believe in his resurrection. And today... I claim him as my Lord and my Savior. Come and live in me so that your life can shine in me now and forever. Amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. I just want to pray a blessing. If you prayed that today, would you just slip your hand up and say, Pastor Joey, I accepted Christ in my life. Anyone here? I'm not going to point you out or embarrass you. I just want to pray a blessing over you. Anybody here today? Amen. Well, now this call is for the church. For the next few moments, as we stand and we respond in worship, as our prayer team begins to come forward, if you have that relative in your life, if there's somebody you've been thinking about all morning, and you're dreading that gathering, I challenge you to come, kneel down. You can down front here, you can pray with one of our prayer team members, or you can kneel down these first row seats, or if you're unable to kneel because of physical limitation, you just want to sit in the seat, I just encourage you to make a move. Make a move in faith and say, Lord God, I ask you to change my heart. God, I'm going to forgive them of these things that they've done, and God, I want you now to bless their life. Make a move on those commitments. Don't stay in your seat. Don't stay the same, but let God begin transforming your holidays in the here and now. As we sing, you stand and you come.